I am very much looking forward to the fall festival tonight. I hope that you will join us. It's always a wonderful time. I think the weather's about perfect. So if you have your sermon outlines, pull them out. This morning, the commission of the king. I took a few minutes this week to scroll through mission statements. Specifically, the mission statements of Fortune 500 companies. You can find them online. Uh, Many of them are quite wordy. I don't know how they accomplish all that, but uh, some are very precise, simple. Um, A lot of them declare that their mission is to be the best in their field or their market, such as AutoNation that says it wants to be America's best-run, most profitable automotive retailer. Some companies' statements are pretty audacious, like Levi Strauss. Listen to this. People love our clothes and trust our company. Accept that premise. We will market the most appealing and widely worn casual clothing in the world. We will clothe the world. That's their mission. Many of them are a bit vague, such as Omnicare that says, our mission is positive outcomes. All right? Better than negative? Some are slightly unrealistic, such as Becton uh, Dixon, which is a medical manufacturing company that aims to help all people live healthier lives. Now, what I notice, some companies exist for the customers, like CVS. They say, we will be the easiest pharmacy retailer for customers to use, while others exist for shareholders, like Dana Corporation says that Dana will grow profitably in the world's vehicular markets and provide industry-leading shareholder value, while some exist apparently for the employees, like Eaton Corporation. Uh, We are committed to attracting, developing, and keeping a diverse workforce that reflects the nature of our global business. And then some try to please all three. Listen to Dollar General. It says, for customers, a better life. For shareholders, a superior return. For employees, respect and opportunity. Now, I don't know if people who work there at these companies refer to these statements often or not, but I'm sure it's a good thing to have. And as employees particularly get caught up in their various tasks, projects, deadlines. Sometimes they must think, what am I doing? Why am I doing all this? What's the goal? What am I contributing to? And mission statements can help answer that and bring you back to what's important. Well, today's passage in Scripture gives us a mission statement. It's the final message from the founder of the company, so to speak, before he turned the whole enterprise over to his workforce. It's a mission that is so big, so audacious, so radical that no one would ever attempt it without being assured of some kind of success or help 
It's specific enough that anyone who attempts it can set their course by it. It's compelling enough that it's lasted over 2,000 years. And it's overwhelming that it's going to take all the shareholders and employees doing their part to even get close to achieving it. Of course, I'm using the language of business to link to the illustration, but it's not a business, is it? What is the title of our sermon series? The King and His Kingdom. It's His Kingdom. This is the way that the King expands and strengthens His Kingdom. It's better known to most Christians as the Great Commission. And it's the final five verses that Matthew recorded in his gospel. Let's read those. Matthew 28, 16 to 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the end of Matthew's gospel. That rather than fading out, explodes with a big task. And so as we look at it in depth this morning, I pray that we would not look at it in despair, in intimidation, thinking that we have nothing to offer. Lord, open our hearts to receive from your Spirit direction and grace. Open our, our ears and our hearts to what you want to tell us this morning. Amen. Last week, we had seen the risen Jesus. He had sent a message to the disciples through Mary and Mary to meet Him in Galilee. And we see here in verse 16 that that message has been received and followed, and they've come, and He's come. And it's appropriate that Jesus meets with His disciples on a mountain one last time. So much in Matthew happens on mountains, if you remember the Sermon on the Mount, the Transfiguration, the teaching on the future that He gave on the Mount of Olives, and now Jesus' final words on the mountain. That's where Jesus instructs, loves, cares for His disciples and points them to the world. And imagine the vantage point looking down. And the disciples are all so caught up in their reunion with Jesus, and they're so moved by the clear evidence that Jesus is alive and has defeated death, that verse 17 says, when they saw him, 
They worshipped Him. But some doubted. Wait, what? Some doubted. Like, more than one. I mean, the other Gospels tell us about doubting Thomas. We knew there was one in every bunch. But some implies a few. That's disturbing to me. I thought this resurrection would cement their resolve. And now Jesus is standing right in front of them. What is there to doubt? That it's, that it's really Him? Maybe that they, that they should be worshiping? I'm not sure. But it's a little shocking. But even as, I have to admit that it's a bit comforting that if the disciples are still full of doubts and fears, even though He's standing right there, then maybe my doubts, my fears, my problems aren't anything uncommon for Jesus' followers. And now once Jesus starts speaking, we can divide up what He says to the disciples into three parts. His claim, His commands, and His comforts. Alright, I don't usually do the alliteration, but there you go. Thank you, Ligon Duncan, for easy to remember points. But verse 18, Jesus has a great claim. All authority. Let's read it again. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now in Philippians 2, 8-11, through 11, you may remember Paul explains this idea of Jesus being given all authority in a deeper way. And being found in human form, He, Jesus, humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has exalted Him, highly exalted Him, and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now we know that Jesus was always God the Son. Always. He has always ruled the universe with full authority as part of the Trinity. But there's a sense in which He laid that authority aside when He came to earth. The Scriptures talk of Him emptying Himself, of veiling His glory when He took on a human nature. He still had authority for miracles and over the winds and waves, but there was something that after His resurrection, God the Father exalted Him and restored to Him full authority over everything. Now, do you remember Satan's promise to Jesus when he was tempting him back in the wilderness, back in Matthew chapter 4? Remember, he says that he'd be able to give Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their glory if Jesus would just bow down to him, which, of course, Jesus did not do. And we see here the glory of what God has given him because he went through the hard road of the cross and death. 
God has given him authority over everything. You may have heard the very famous quote by Abraham Kuyper, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign, does not cry, mine. And so Jesus is declaring he has authority, but what's he about to do? We read in the responsive reading, it's not here in Matthew, but Jesus is ascending to heaven. He's leaving. And he's delegating his kingdom work to very unqualified people who have no spiritual authority on their own. His command is to the original disciples. And it's to the next generation of disciples. And then to the next and all the way down to us. The Great Commission is not for individuals to accomplish. I don't know if you ever read it and said, how am I going to do all that? Because it's not just you. It's the command to the whole church, Christ's church throughout the ages, is the group that Jesus entrusts with his plan, his only plan. There's no backup which is amazing considering how badly the church has acted through the ages, how many times it has gone off the rails, how it's pursued political power or tried to be intellectually respectable or tried to violently silence its critics and opponents. But the true church is called to a beautiful mission and it starts with being authorized by the all-powerful king to carry out that mission. And so we see in verse 19 and 20, Jesus' command, Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. very first thing Jesus says, go. Many of you know Keith Green, a Christian singer from the late 70s, early 80s, dating myself a little bit. But he used to tell his audiences that because Jesus commanded us to go, you better have a really good reason to stay. I mean, he would, in his concerts, say, all right, how many of you know for sure you're called to stay here in the States? All right, three, four of you, the rest of you, go. Get on the mission field. And that was a pretty radical message. And I have a feeling it, it helped probably launch some full-time missions career, praise God. But I'm not exactly sure that that's what Jesus is teaching here. Yes, he urged the original disciples, go out. Get out of Jerusalem, into the world to spread my message. But I'm not sure that you can't grow up and minister in the same town that you were born in. Because going doesn't automatically mean overseas. Somewhere else. It certainly makes it a possibility. God may call you to that. But going means that believers are active. We are not inert. We cross the street to talk to our neighbors. We show up. 
for people. We go on short-term missions trips. We take unbelieving friends out to eat. We go out of our comfort zone. Sometimes it's just walking across the room. We're starting a conversation in Starbucks. Going can mean a lot of different things. It implies that we support others who are going as well, prayerfully, financially. Jesus didn't want Christianity to be limited to Israel. He didn't want the disciples to stay where they were. He wanted this thing to spread all over the place. In case there were any lingering doubts about whether they should minister to Gentiles, to non-Jews, include them in God's plans. Well, the all nations, make disciples of all nations part, pretty much settled that. Cross every boundary of nation, people, tongue, and tribe, and take the gospel there. And not only does that mean we can support missions to every country and people group, but that every kind of person who comes before us is a candidate for the kingdom. There are no restrictions. So whether I meet someone from Leesburg, Louisiana, Lithuania, Latin America, it doesn't matter. All nations will be reflected in the kingdom. For a movement that started with 12 men, in a very small area of the Middle East, Christianity grew rapidly in the first few centuries and has since spread to every corner of the globe. But we know that there are still hundreds, maybe thousands of people groups that have not been reached for the gospel. There's still a lot of work left to be done. Now, to really understand Jesus' command, we, got, we need a quick grammar lesson. Almost every commentary I read talked about this, but here's what Robin, Robert Rayburn said. There's a main verb. Stay with me here. It's not as boring as it sounds. Main verb in the imperative here in verse 19. Make disciples. That's an imperative. That's the main command. Baptizing and teaching are participles, right? So they're dependent upon the main verb. And what that tells us is that baptizing and teaching specify what is involved in making disciples. We're not, we're not told to do like three things. Make disciples, then baptize, then teach, but only one. Make disciples, which one thing is accomplished by baptizing and teaching. And you notice that Jesus doesn't phrase it, go and make converts. Now certainly to make a disciple, we must make sure that they have converted, that they believe the gospel, that they have new life. But discipleship works deeper. It's inviting them in to the practical outworking of their faith. Convert is someone who's become convinced of the truth of Christianity and changed their allegiance because their hearts have changed. A disciple is then someone who tries to look like Jesus and who is committed 
on some level to the work of making other disciples, of furthering his kingdom work. Billy Graham, the great evangelist, admitted to a biographer that he often laid awake at night wondering about the people who made decisions for Christ at his rallies. He wondered whether anyone was following up with them, teaching them, helping them become grounded in their faith. I'm certainly not criticizing him. He had an amazing ministry. But just point out that wonderful evangelism needs to be followed with being united to a church and growing in faith. Paul said it like this in Colossians 1.28. Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That was Paul's aim. Let us never apologize for seeking to bring maturity to this church, whether it's with children, the youth, in our Sunday schools, in our worship. We aim for maturity. Back to the participles. The the first part of making disciples is to bring them into the church, the Christian community which is sealed with baptism. Baptism signifies that someone is entering into the covenant community. The event itself, of course, is important. But more importantly, baptism brings a person to a local church where discipleship can take place. Baptism is God's putting His mark on us. We call it a sign of and a seal. I don't want to spend too much time on this, and I, I certainly don't want to get into the pros and cons of infant baptism and believer's baptism. We do both. But I've, so I've posted an article to the city, if you're on the city yet, that my brother wrote on why we baptize infants. But we baptize in the name of each part, person of the Trinity. As we recognize the one God in three persons, and we honor each member, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, as we see the different ways that they work in our lives. Yes, Jesus has all authority, but so does the Father, and so does the Spirit. And so we bring them in and baptize them. The second part of making a disciple is the ongoing ministry of teaching them to obey all that He commanded. Jesus' teaching ministry becomes our teaching ministry. We're not free to teach whatever we want. We're called to teach His words, His Scriptures. Now we are so broad that we teach the full counsel of God, the entire Bible over a course of time. But we're also so focused and so simple and precise that we can sum it up in four words like Paul did. Christ and Him crucified. Frederick Bruner 
reminds us that when you come to church, you may find compassion. You may find soup kitchens. You may find entertainment. You may find beautiful music. You may find friends. You may find all sorts of things when you come to the church in the 21st century. But if you do not find the unique treasure of Christ's teaching, then the church has sold you short. And I say that if you go to a church that doesn't crack open the scriptures in its worship service or give you any chances for Bible study, run. As we teach, sometimes we have this view that Christian discipleship is a seesaw. All right? One side is the learning and doctrine and, and sort of ministering to those already in the church. And so if you sit on that side, the seesaw is going to look like this. And the other side is the living it out and, and spreading it to outsiders. And if you're up with one, you must be down with the other. It's an either or. But we can't use that metaphor. There's no reason that we need to pick one or the other. We need both. Right? It should be a both and situation. And this whole Great Commission, go out, teach, baptize, bring them in, go out. Back and forth for both. Let's seek balance. As we understand more about the Scriptures, about who God is, that propels us out. And as we spread His Word, we're joyful. Or we want to find out more. It brings us back to teach and to learn. Now, you may be sitting there going, okay, I got that. We're in the church. We're, this is sending us out. But how do I fulfill the Great Commission? Because this is some heady stuff. How does your average, ordinary, layperson, not ordained, how does this Christian... Fulfill the Great Commission. I mean, this is... I want to give you a little checklist or list of suggestions. This is not a checklist that you need to finish by the end of the year or anything. Um, it's just a short list that you might want to think through because it's not all amazing, difficult tasks that are called upon. I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I heard a lot of amazing stories connected to the idea of going and spreading the gospel. Do you remember, again, going to date me a little bit, uh, David Wilkerson was a pastor. Uh, he wrote The Cross and the Switchblade, and he was called to minister in the inner city of New York to gang members. And after he'd been there a little while, uh, he was speaking to one of the gang leaders, Nicky Cruz, and Nicky Cruz pulled out a knife said, I could cut you into a thousand pieces, man. And David said, yeah, you could. You could put them, spread them all out. Every piece would love you. So there, there was a dramatic story. You combine that with sort of missionary stories, and Paul and Peter. And I thought you had to have just unbelievable courage and crazy experiences to be a true Christian, fulfilling God's call 
and mission. And I think we're all a little nervous that if we give God the chance, He's going to send us to a jungle in Africa where we don't want to go, right? But we need to stop being so intimidated and see that we can fulfill the Great Commission where we are. Not that God won't ever call you to something radical. He might. But start here. Here's a few ideas. To start with, let's do what the disciples did. They worshipped Jesus. In fact, we sang that, that worship is the fuel for mission. And we see throughout the book of Acts, as the disciples go, they are deeply connected to the Lord, to His authority, to His power. We need to worship Jesus to expect Him to bless our efforts. And before you get too far in obeying the Great Commission, make sure that you know what Jesus commanded and that you're attempting to obey it. Well, none of us follows it perfectly, of course. But before you ask somebody else to obey everything, look into that. Here's a pretty practical one. How well do you know your next door neighbors? I've heard that well over half of Americans don't even know their next door neighbors. This might be the easiest part of go. Walk next door. Introduce yourself. Another possibility, find ways to turn your hobbies, the things you love, into avenues for getting out there, getting to know people outside the faith. Sports, crafts, music, book clubs, travel, whatever you're into. Use it to get to know and love others. You could join the missions committee we can start praying and supporting a missionary if you've never done that before. You get really crazy and go on a short-term mission trip. Join us in the Bahamas next year. But you know, a really overlooked key for each of you to keep the Great Commission is to look at the spiritual gifts that you have and use them. Teaching may not be your gift. And in the PCA, only pastors can baptize. So you may be thinking, all right, uh, this, none of this applies to me because I can't baptize and I can't teach, so what do you got for me? But I need you to see that everything you do for this body of believers and those surrounding it contributes to our ability to collectively fulfill the Great Commission. Do you have the gift of prayer? Please use that. If all you did was attend church and pray like crazy for everyone and everything, that would be a huge thing. God accomplishes things when we pray. Are you great at behind the scenes? Organization. Fantastic. We need things to run well. Do you enjoy having people in your home? Great. Find some of the new people. The people who are lonely or hurting, have them in your home. Paul's teaching on spiritual gifts reminds us we need everyone's gifts to function effectively 
as a church. And finally, if you're really feeling inspired, you could think about discipling someone one-on-one, maybe one-on-two as the joy groups that we have set up with the women in some kind of structured way. Now, we say that we disciple the church as a whole through our worship and our work. And maybe you need discipling and maybe you need to seek someone out to uh, help you become more spiritually mature. But chances are that if you've been a Christian for many years and you've sat under godly teaching, you could probably do a great job discipling someone else. Just a thought. These are some ideas I'm sure the Holy Spirit will impress you with others. But my point is that we all have a part to play. And sometimes I wonder, how do we measure success with this plan? Do we have to produce a certain number of disciples? Do we have to turn in acceptable baptism figures or explain how our teaching transformed lives? I think the better question to focus on as a church and as individuals is, were we faithful? Did we take advantage of the opportunities in front of us, maybe even seeking out opportunities? Did we use our gifts? And listen, I think we all feel like we stink at this. I do. Most pastors I meet don't think that they do enough. Lifelong missionaries struggle with effectiveness. Probably every Christian probably has a low level of guilt that they could be doing more. So I want to remind us the bookends around the Great Commission are our great comfort. The great promises we've already talked about the fact that Jesus has all authority, can accomplish anything he chooses. And now, at the end of verse 20, we see the other bookend. That Jesus' comfort is that He gives us His presence. He says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This isn't a new concept in the Scriptures. God's been assuring His people of His presence throughout history. The most famous Psalm, Psalm 23, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And then God speaking in Isaiah 41, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. This is not new for believers, but Christ repeats it as great comfort. Jesus is with me when I get up to preach. He's with me on a mission trip in a dangerous neighborhood. He's with you when you step into first period English or when you enroll in a philosophy class in college. When you attend a neighborhood party and get into faith discussions. He's with you at work when you stand up for an ethical, moral principle or 
salt and light to your co-workers, your neighbors, your family. That doesn't mean you're exempt from harm and persecution. I think you hope you know enough about the New Testament to hear the many times we're told we can be persecuted. But if we face it, we will not face it alone. We go to the world with the life-changing message of salvation through faith in Christ because He first came to us. He took on flesh, became a man incarnate, leaving the splendor of heaven to experience the pain and squalor of this life and submitted to a painful death on a cross. All because Jesus was on a mission from His heavenly Father to seek and to save the lost. And because He was willing to endure all of that for His mission, we follow, we emulate Him by accepting His mission for us. We're Christ's hands and feet to take His Word into the world, to establish community of believers who love Him first and love each other and those that He brings to us deeply. Teaching, maturing, training all who will respond so that the church continually expands and multiplies. And one day, we will stand in the presence of Christ in heaven. We'll see the fruit of our labors, of what He's accomplished. And we'll rejoice and worship Him for all eternity because He loved us and He forgave us and then He gave us a share in His kingdom-building business. Amen. Take a few moments to praise God that this, is, this was His plan that he entrusted us and ask him how you can go and how you can make disciples and be part of his work. Hear the words of the benediction from the first chapter of Ephesians. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church which is His body, the fullness of of Him who fills all in all. Amen.